Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Intercepted. Welcome to Intercepted. I'm Laura Flynn, one of the producers. We'll be back with Jeremy and a regular show soon. For now, the producers bring you this special bonus episode. The Fox News decision desk can now project that former Vice President Joe Biden will win Pennsylvania and Nevada, putting him over the 270 electoral votes he needs to become the 46th president of the United States. Two weeks have passed since the election, and Donald Trump has yet to concede. States are in the process of certifying results projected to give Joe Biden the electoral votes to win. Biden also leads the popular vote by more than 5 million at this point. As Trump wages failing legal challenges and a disinformation campaign, the coronavirus is again ravaging the country. In a span of only six days, the number of recorded COVID-19 cases jumped from 10 to 11 million. Nearly a quarter of a million Americans have died from this disease. The Intercept's senior correspondent, Naomi Klein, outlines the multiple crises facing us and the urgent response needed. I'm Naomi Klein, senior correspondent for The Intercept. Now tens of millions of unsolicited ballots without any verification measures whatsoever. Well, we're interrupting this because what the president of the United States is saying, in large part, is absolutely untrue. He began, and, and, and we're not going to allow it to keep going because it's not true. Yeah, the president coming out and basically saying that uh, he believes the election has been stolen. He didn't take any questions, Brett. At this point, it would be wrong for him to concede. There's, there is strong evidence that this was a, an election that in at least three or four states and possibly 10, they're, they're, it was stolen. Democrats, they just want to try and block any and all audit of what are now growing examples and, frankly, affidavits of ballot irregularities and outright illegality. We don't know how many votes were stolen on Tuesday night. We don't know anything about the software that many say was rigged. We don't know. We ought to find out. The chorus of Republican voices echoing manufactured claims of election fraud hasn't petered out yet. So, is it A... A grift to raise cash for Donald Trump? B. A ploy to goose aggrieved Republican turnout in Georgia's high-stakes Senate runoffs? Or C. An elaborate scheme to flatter a nuclear-armed narcissist into gradually accepting the reality that he is what he most fears, a loser. 
is it D, an attempt to preemptively drain the Biden-Harris administration of perceived legitimacy in an effort to clip its wings and then use its ineffectiveness to secure big Republican wins in the midterms? Or is it E, an actual thought-through coordinated plot for Republican-controlled state legislatures to use the pretext of public concerns over voter fraud concerns methodically manufactured out of thin air through sheer force of repetition by Trump and his minions to claim a constitutional duty to override the state's certified election results and instead directly appoint Republican presidential electors. Is what we are witnessing the prelude to an electoral college coup? A through D are definitely happening. You believe that when all the legal votes are counted, you will have won. You believe that? Absolutely, we believe that. So that is what we are uh, going to show the nation. We absolutely believe when every legal vote is counted, uh, President Trump will win. And watch that Georgia recount. What I'd like to know is what in the hell is the Republican Party doing to defend and to, I mean, why not just say we're not going to accept the results of this election? It's outrageous. It's, there's, a, there's a sneaking suspicion, me and a lot of Americans, that Joe Biden was installed somehow, some way. I can't prove this allegation, but it's a gut feeling. But that's why you do these kind of investigations. Do you kind of have that feeling, too? To be clear... The reason a tin pot coup attempt remains highly unlikely has nothing to do with the laughable idea that Republican lawmakers have too much respect for core Democratic principles to engage in such a brazen power grab. You know, the president wasn't uh, defeated by huge numbers. In fact, he may not have been defeated at all. Anyone who's running for office can exhaust concerns about counting in any court of appropriate jurisdiction. And President Trump will get 9 million, 10 million more votes than he got last time, but still come up short? No one would have believed that. And that's why you got 73 million people who think something doesn't feel right here, and that's why they want it investigated. These are people who owe their holds on state power, and in many cases, their entire careers to openly anti-democratic redistricting schemes and other wily tools of suppressing, at all costs, the terrifying prospect of majority rule. If Republicans don't challenge and change the U.S. election system, there'll never be another Republican president elected again. President Trump should not... They keep finding new ways to tell us that they don't actually believe in representative democracy. And we should believe them. Because we're fixing to overturn the results of the election in multiple states, and President Trump won by not just hundreds of thousands of votes, but by millions of votes. We have so much evidence, I feel like it's coming in through a fire hose. How will you prove this, Cindy? Well, I've got lots of ways to prove it, Maria, but I'm not going to tell on national TV what all we have. I just can't do that. The tactic of taking minor voting irregularities and outlandishly inflating them to the level of election stealing, thereby justifying a very real coup d'etat, 
has been the go-to tactic in countless U.S.-backed regime change operations around the world, schemes supported, it must be said, by Republicans and Democrats alike. There will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. Right? We're, we're ready. The, the world is watching what's taking place here. We're going to count all the votes. When the process is complete, there'll be electors. Do not tell yourself that they are above bringing that tactic home. We'll have a smooth transition, and we'll see what the people ultimately decided when all the votes have been cast. We have a process, Brett. The Constitution lays out how electors vote. It's a very detailed process laid out. We need to comply with all of that, and that I am very confident that we will have a good transition. If the Republican Party refrains, and I believe it will, it won't be out of fealty to democracy, but rather out of loyalty to market and empire. That's why Rupert Murdoch and other corporate titans are rumored to be trying to talk Trump off the cliff. Uh, When it concerns the president himself, uh, he's very frustrated, he's flustered, he's disillusioned, uh, but he's also realistic. You you mentioned, uh, you know, he he used that characterization himself about his own chances. Uh, He said he'll do the right thing uh, when the time comes, but he wants every legitimate vote uh, counted. Still, Given the kind of profitable chaos Republicans and their donors have grown accustomed to under Trump, nothing can be ruled out. The Republican strategy, if they do go down this road, relies on state legislators appealing to a perception, not a reality, that the public has lost faith in the election results. The Biden crime family stealing the election! The media's covering it up! The Biden crime family stealing this election! The media's covering it up! The Biden crime family stealing this election! The media's covering it up! We want our freedom for the world! Give us our freedom, Joe Biden! Joe Biden's covering up this election! He's stealing it! That's a lot easier to claim if the only people screaming outside your offices and bombarding you with phone calls and emails are Trump supporters shouting conspiracy theories about voter fraud, while the people who would see a challenge to certified election results as a straight-up coup have already moved on, convinced that Republicans wouldn't dare cross yet another Democratic red line, so they aren't even bothering to make the point. To be absolutely clear, the point shouldn't have to be made. There is zero evidence of widespread fraud, and ratifying certified election results should be a formality. But if there is one core lesson to take from the Republican victory in Florida in 2000, when the Bush campaign staged AstroTurf riots and the Gore campaign told supporters to stay home and trust the process, it is that partisan decision-makers are swayed by street-level messaging wars. If Republican state lawmakers are inclined towards flagrantly overriding the will of the people, the ability to claim that the overwhelming majority of the people they are hearing from have lost faith in the elections may be excuse enough. Remember, they would not be looking for the truth, which they obviously already know, but rather a marginally plausible cover story. One-sided protests could provide that. Where are the votes? 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 Where
It's in this context that Democrats should be out there forcefully defending the integrity of the votes and condemning coup plotting for what it is. But the public shouldn't wait for Democratic leaders to tell them it's time to fight back. Anyone who still kind of likes the idea of votes counting for something, regardless of who they voted for or even if they voted in this election, should consider taking some time to make their voices heard to legislators in those Republican-controlled houses. This is an organizing challenge, and for understandable reasons. The election is much closer than it should have been, given Trump's murderous reign, but it's hardly a nail-biter coming down to a few hanging chads. For this reason, most organizers have concluded that this time around, they don't need to focus their energies on avoiding a repeat of the Bush v. Gore-style Democratic Party dumpster fire. The vice president has recalled the governor and retracted his concession. But this race is simply too close to call. And until the results, the recount is concluded and the results of Florida, Florida become official, our campaign continues. Bill Daly, the uh, chairman of the Gore campaign, you just heard it. We're all, uh, I think we can hardly believe our ears. He said, uh, until... Instead, most progressive organizations are working hard to avoid a repeat of a different variety of Democratic Party debacle the one that unfolded in 2008-2009 in the months between Barack Obama's euphoric election win in November and his inauguration in January. That's when Obama surrounded himself with a team of hardcore neoliberal economists and Wall Street bankers. It'll be a stirring sight to watch President Obama, his wife Michelle, and their beautiful girls step through the doors of the White House. That's 76 days away, meaning the clock's already ticking for Mr. Obama to assemble his cabinet. The economy puts his choice for Treasury Secretary under the most scrutiny. Two former Clinton Treasury Secretaries top the list, Robert Rubin and Larry Summers, as well as Tim Geithner, who runs the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. He's well thought of on Wall Street. And so, despite campaign promises to rebuild Main Street, address structural market failures, and arrest the climate crisis, they spent the transition mapping out a maddeningly inadequate response to the raging financial crisis, one that grossly failed working people and the planet. As the new cabinet was being assembled and its agenda set in stone, anyone who raised concerns about where this train was obviously headed was promptly told to pipe down and give the guy a chance, the mantra of those fateful months. Months were wasted with fantastical narratives about the president's imagined long game, stories that cast Obama as a progressive hero who was only temporarily appeasing the hungry gods of the market in order to buy time for his transformational popular agenda that was always just around the corner. It never came. The political window and Federal Reserve faucet that was opened up by Wall Street's collapse eventually closed, and the logic of austerity soon bore down once again. The racial wealth gap widened. The planet burned. The architects of these crimes faced no consequences. 
not until a new wave of far more independent and confrontational movements rose up in Obama's second term, Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, The Dreamers, Fossil Fuel Divestment, No Keystone XL, Standing Rock, did we start to see some actual progress. But nothing Obama's administration did match the scale of the crises it faced, and which have only deepened since. I take heart from the fact that the militant movements born in Obama's second term, and which deepened during the Trump years, have clearly learned from the mistakes made in the 2008-2009 transition period. Since Election Day, the reigning attitude towards Biden among groups organizing for racial, economic, and climate justice has been, this guy gets zero chances. Organizations that have worked relentlessly for months to turn out the vote for Biden did not even take a weekend off to celebrate. Instead, they immediately unveiled detailed plans outlining all of the executive actions a Biden-Harris administration could take within its first 100 days. Measures like immediate student debt relief, generous people's bailouts as part of its COVID-19 response, and a highly detailed Frontline's Climate Justice Executive Action Platform backed by a coalition of powerful groups and published by the think tank Demos. Most Ambitious has been a campaign just launched by the Sunrise Movement and Justice Democrats, which focuses not only on what the new administration can do, but also who should be appointed to Biden's cabinet to do it. Picture this. In 2021, young people all over the country will celebrate as Treasury Secretary Elizabeth Warren enacts Biden's plan to cancel most student loan debt. On the day she's sworn in as the first Native American to lead the Department of Interior, Deb Holland will end all fracking permits on federal land. Representative Barbara Lee casts the sole vote against giving George W. Bush authority to deploy troops anytime, anywhere. On one level, the whole exercise is a heartbreak, a painful glimpse of the government we could have had under a Bernie Sanders presidency. In a best-case scenario, maybe two of these movement-backed picks stand a chance of making it through the Beltway gatekeepers running the Biden-Harris transition. And even that is highly unlikely. But that doesn't make this aggressive attempt to move the benchmarks a waste of time. The fact that Sunrise and Justice Democrats were so quick to capitalize on the election's record youth turnout and go on the offensive with their vision for a transformational administration speaks to just how different this moment is from 2008. The groups that mobilized to defeat Trump have every intention of staying mobilized and pushing Biden at every stage. Biden, these are letters from people, the young people that got you in office. We need you to be brave right now for our futures, for our generation, because we're counting on you. That's a very good thing. And though it won't give us Bernie's would-be cabinet, it is already yielding some modest results. Every cabinet-level appointment will be heavily scrutinized for their industry ties, which is already happening to Biden's transition teams and was far from the case for Obama. 
And though Biden will likely never use the term Green New Deal, there are clear indications that the vision of a holistic, government-wide approach to the climate crisis is already shaping the new administration's priorities. Tackling our era of overlapping crises demands that kind of focus, one that aligns every part of the government in the urgent mission of simultaneously bending the curve on COVID-19 cases and on greenhouse gas emissions, all while systematically closing racial and gender inequalities and creating millions of family-supporting low-carbon jobs. And there's an added bonus. A government that can give people the sense that we are all doing our part in a soaring common project, a project expansive enough to have a meaningful role for everyone who wants it, is also best positioned to begin to heal the political ruptures that are ripping the country apart. In fact, I have a hunch that joining people together in life-saving, job-creating common cause might even be more effective than the various suggestions that we all go out and engage in active listening with pissed-off Trump voters. Lock him up! Lock him up! Lock him up! We are not letting that crackhead and that pedophile in our house! But what of the persistent rumblings of a seamless transition to a second Trump term? Um, I just think it's an embarrassment, um, quite frankly. Uh, the only thing that, uh, how can I say this uh, tactfully? I, I think it will not help the president's legacy. I think that uh, I know from my discussions with foreign leaders thus far that they are hopeful that the United States democratic institutions are viewed once again as being strong and enduring. And, uh, but I think at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's all going to come to fruition on January 20th. And between now and then, my hope and expectation is that the American people are, do know, do understand that there has been a transition, even among uh, Republicans who are people who voted for the president. I understand the sense of Look, we can't pretend it's not happening. The truth, as usual, is we have to do it all. Stop the Republicans from stealing an election they lost. And stop the Democrats from blowing a mandate that they won. That was The Intercept's senior correspondent, Naomi Klein, who spoke to our producer, Jack Dizidoro. Dr. King said, quote, the greatest purveyor of violence in the world today is my own government, unquote. 
This remains true in the midst of our endless war on terror. The United States has embraced a permanent war economy. Peace through strength is a dangerous lie in a world that includes weapons of mass destruction on hair trigger alert. The weapons from one trident have the capacity to end life as we know it on planet Earth. Standing on a beach under overcast clouds, seven activists, now known as the Kings Bay Plowshares, huddled together as Patrick O'Neill reads a statement about the disarmament action they're about to take part in. More than two years ago, Carmen Trotta and Martha Hennessy, two of the activists who were gathered on the beach that day, broke into a naval base in Brunswick, Georgia. The peace activists, armed with vials of their own blood and protest banners, symbolically attempted to disarm the nuclear weapons they say are located at the base. Now, the activists face federal sentences for their nonviolent actions. This, as the coronavirus continues to devastate carceral facilities. As of last week, more than 180,000 people in state and federal prisons have tested positive for the virus, according to weekly data tracked by the Marshall Project. And just like the rest of the country, the numbers are rising. Uh, so I would like to take a brief statement. I have to tell you, it was... On Thursday, at Mary House in New York's East Village, volunteers and community members of the Catholic Worker listened to Carmen's sentencing hearing, virtually. Upstairs in a bedroom that once belonged to Dorothy Day, co-founder of the Catholic Worker, Carmen sits in front of a computer screen. He's about to face Southern District of Georgia judge Lisa Wood. Producer Elise Swain brings us the story. First, you hear Carmen addressing the court an audio obtained by The Intercept. I was told by the prosecution that I had an extensive criminal record. And when I heard this, I was sort of dumbstruck. I didn't think I had any criminal record. I, I did at some point come to understand that I had 20, 30 arrests. But in my mind, they were all justified. Carmen is an anti-war activist and member of the Catholic Worker Movement, which dates back to the 1930s and is grounded in nonviolence, justice, and mercy. It's been now more than two years since Carmen wore a GoPro camera and walked on to the Georgia Naval Base to symbolically disarm the Trident nuclear weapon system. In last year's trial, the judge refused to grant expert witnesses, and the activists were unable to prove to a jury that nuclear weapons really were at the base. Carmen and the six other defendants were convicted of three felonies and a misdemeanor. Now, Carmen's so-called extensive criminal record could be taken into effect by the judge when handing down his sentence. So he's telling the court that he believes all his previous arrests, including the felonies he's about to be sentenced for, were justified. Every one of my actions has been a reaction to an American war crime. Moreover, in every instance my arrests were for acts of nonviolent civil disobedience or civil resistance. Let me state unambiguously that all of my extensive criminal history, I have never raised a hand in anger and violence against another. In the end, Carmen receives a much shorter sentence than he expected. He's given 14 months and up to three years of supervised release. And because of the, quote, property destruction done on the naval base by the activists, the judge ordered Carmen to pay his share of the restitution, amounting to a grand total of over $33,000. 
It's a little hard to hear, but Carmen decides to tell the judge right then and there that he's not going to pay it. Things quite differently. When I, that military base, in my mind, um, is a genocidal criminal conspiracy, and I will not pay uh, money for restitution. Wow. I know that can change the calculation. Just after Carmen's sentencing ends, his co-defendant, Claire Grady, begins hers. She's speaking with the judge from her home in Ithaca, New York, and at the Catholic Worker in New York City, we're listening. This is what brings me to this court today for sentencing. It is the consequence of my choice to join friends, to undertake an act of sacramental, Nonviolent symbolic disarmament. Because the trident at King's Bay is killing and harming in my name. To be clear, these weapons are not private property. They belong to the people of the United States. They belong to me, to you, to us. These weapons kill and cause harm in our name and with our money. Judge Wood sentences Claire to 12 months and one day, and like the others, she has to pay restitution and was given up to three years supervised release. The judge was also made to listen to Claire's health concerns. She's a two-time cancer survivor, and she's also suffering from Lyme disease. Claire shares her fears of incarceration, especially amid a lethal pandemic. I do not like jail. I do not like being treated as less than human. I do not like being yelled at all day long. I do not like being cold, hungry, tired, and overworked. I do not like being separated from my family, from the natural world, not to feel the earth beneath my feet, the sun over my head, and the wind on my face. I do not like the violence of being warehoused with women, fellow women, who need healing and not further harm. I am really scared of being in prison in COVID. I can say with certainty that I have never seen a jail or a prison where you could practice the social distancing that we are told could save our lives during this pandemic. It only adds alarm that I'm 62 and have had melanoma twice in the past three years and have been living with the lingering effects of being infected with a tick-borne illness. My immune system is not what it used to be. On Friday afternoon, Martha Hennessy addresses the court. Martha's grandmother is Dorothy Day, and she's sitting in her old room at Mary House, speaking directly to the judge. The use of nuclear weapons is immoral, which is why it must be added to the catechism of the Catholic Church. Not only for use, but also processing them. Because of accident or the badness of some government leaders, one person's man can destroy humanity. This year marks the 65th anniversary of dropping the bomb. We remain unaccountable for our war crimes. Judge Wood gives Martha 10 months, the lightest sentence yet. She, of course, also has to pay restitution and make it up to a year in supervised release. Um, We're here at Mary House on um, 3rd Street, Lower Manhattan, at um, Catholic Worker House of Hospitality. 
and um, we just finished up. We've had three sentencings happen, two yesterday, one today, and we had to do them virtually remote because of the COVID pandemic. Martha Carmen and I sit in a small office at Mary House. It's cold out and the radiator is about to come to life. They're feeling relieved at their shorter than expected sentences and more than a little exhausted. And it's not an easy thing going into court, and it's not an easy thing um, doing it remote. So I'm just very grateful to have it behind me at this point. But I feel really good that these character witnesses said what they said. I mean, it's it's totally embarrassing (laughs) what they have to say about me as a person. Before the plowshares defendants addressed the court in their final sentencing statements, all three were allowed character witnesses. One of Martha's witnesses, an attorney named Mary Yelenick, told the court, quote, Sentencing guidelines cannot help us evade our own moral responsibility. Those guidelines could not and do not contemplate a time of global pandemic when consigning Martha Hennessy to prison presents a very real risk of being a death sentence. But I really do think that the um, prosecutor and the judge, they will not escape what was said to them. They, their lives are not going to be the same after dealing with this case. I was told, by, I was told that I had an extensive criminal record. I never, it never occurred to me that I had any extensive criminal record. I never thought I had any criminal record. And then I stood to reason, and you're like, okay, so you possibly got arrested 20, 30 times in your lifetime. But in my, I felt like they were all justified. And every one of them, without fail, was actually a response to an American war crime. So I still feel like I really don't have a criminal record. Most of mine um, is sort of, uh, I think I'm the one that is upholding the law. And I I think that's actually true. Oh, as it turned out, I got 14 months. You take two off and it becomes 12. The two off are because I already did 50 some odd days down in Georgia. At this point, I am given to believe, according to my lawyers, that I'm going to do 11 months. Um, which is vastly different than, than, you know, it's half of what I thought I was going to be doing. So. Over on the west side of Tompkins Square Park, as people pass by, heading into the park or off to brunch, the leaves are falling and Carmen Trotta is back to his usual Saturday morning routine. He's holding a banner that reads, Stop U.S.-Saudi War Crimes in Yemen. The group of activists that surround him have come from all different anti-war organizations and have been led by Carmen in a weekly vigil for Yemen since April of 2017. Here's Carmen again. So just a couple of weeks ago, a report came out from the United Nations that uh, in the city of Sana'a, in the capital city of that nation, uh, 45% of the children in Yemen are stunted in their growth. And that doesn't mean that they, um, the problem is not that they don't grow tall. The problem really is that there are all sorts of cognitive difficulties that occur. So you're going, you've, we've destroyed a generation of children. Um, below the age of five uh, in the city of Sana'a. And actually, there's more of that around the country. Um, But that was just one study that was done. So it's really a frightening thing. It's interesting to hear that Joe Biden is going to pull us out of that war. We'll see what actually uh, happens. We are not going to betray our beloved Saudi Arabian 
uh, relationship, right? And you're going to do this every week until you self-report? Oh, probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably. I met Carmen 18 years ago. We got to know one another a little better. I realized the intensity of Carmen um, and the drive because he's honest and sincere and compassionate. Back in the bustling kitchen at St. Mary House, I meet Bud Courtney. He's known Carmen for nearly two decades. They've lived and worked together in community at St. Joseph House for over a decade. And Bud was a character witness for Carmen during Thursday's sentencing. I, I felt like I was a part-time activist. And so I, I asked if there was work that could be done at the Catholic Work, and they invited me to do the soup line. And that's ultimately how I ended up moving in. But I saw, now I wasn't seeing Carmen the activist, the guy that was speaking out at demonstrations and, and getting arrested. I saw the guy that was serving soup and getting under the sink and fixing the leak and putting new tiles down, um, answering the door, serving coffee to someone outside, giving clothing. And I, I saw the love that he did it with, the, the deep compassion. What I wanted the court to know is, is what, it seems so obvious. Um, and, and yet you know that you're, it, it's falling on deaf ears. That, you know, we all know, we all know what nuclear weapons are capable of and how close we are, especially at this moment in time with the people that can set them off, that the world could end at any moment. In January of this year, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists moved the doomsday clock to 100 seconds to midnight. That means we are now closer to nuclear annihilation than we have ever been before. On Monday, the New York Times reported that Donald Trump sought options for attacking Iran's uranium stockpile in the coming weeks. And while Trump was apparently dissuaded from this action, it should be clear that the threat of the United States beginning a nuclear war is not a question of if, but when. What I wanted to say is that the King's Bay 7 plowshares are prophets. That prophets aren't just people from the Old Testament, you know, these wild men that are speaking crazy stuff, um, you know, thousands and thousands of years ago. I know that I've walked with prophets, and, and I firmly believe I live with one. Um, and we need to listen to what they're saying. They're not crazy. They didn't just cut a fence. Um, and there was a reason why they went there. And it wasn't, it wasn't for fame. No one wakes up and says, I'm going to give up. I'm going to risk 20 years of my life. Trump's efforts these past years to modernize the U.S. nuclear arsenal has an estimated cost in the trillions and could spark a nuclear arms race with other nations. Now, globally, nine countries, including the United States, have nuclear weapons. That's according to the Federation of American Scientists. But how do we effectively protest against this threat to humanity? Here's Bud. And when the prosecutor said, I don't know, I might have been Carmen, but, you know, there's other ways to protest nuclear weapons. And I thought, yeah, but is there an effective one? 
I mean, obviously there has not been any serious, effective protest. But does that mean we stop trying? Or we look for new ways? And the plowshares isn't new, and maybe it's not effective. But if you reach one person, it's better than nothing. As Carmen and Martha now have less than 30 days before they must self-report to a federal prison, they don't know which one yet. They hope that others will see the true cost of nuclear weapons and war. I do find it very interesting that our sentences have gone down to where they are. And I'm curious to get to the bottom of that. And the one theory that comes to my mind is given that Pope Francis has firmly condemned the nuclear weapons, given uh, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, there is a pivot, there is a turn against the nuclear system. And part of me thinks that if they were to persecute us, if they would put us in jail for two years, two and a half years, three years, it would raise more eyebrows than we've already raised, and we've raised enough of them. I mean, none of us, none of us thought we were going to go, that there was going to be downward departures for us. Both Carmen and I got reduced in our categories. Uh, yeah, I was because of overstatement of our criminal history, which is all nonviolent protests of torture and war. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I initially got 24 to 7 months, and I was convinced that I was going to, that that's what I was going to get. And so to, be, to get what gets whittled down in the process to seemingly, I'm going to do 11 months, according to the lawyers. And it might be the case that we are going to be, particularly now if you have a nonviolent offense, the Bureau of Prisons is open to putting people on home confinement. The issue of nuclear abolition is coming more and more to the forefront. Yeah, I think so. This hiding of the nuclear arsenal all these decades. I mean, my kids, who are in their 30s and 40s, they have no sense of the urgency of nuclear holocaust. It's been hidden from them. That was reported by producer Elise Swain. Read her full story at The Intercept titled Anti-Nuclear Pacifists Get Federal Prison Terms for Nonviolent Protests. And that does it for this bonus episode. You can follow us on Twitter at Intercepted and on Instagram at Intercepted Podcast. We'll be back with Jeremy in the chair in just a few weeks. Intercepted is a production of First Look Media and The Intercept. Our lead producer is Jack Dizidoro. Elise Swain is our associate producer and graphic designer. Betsy Reed is editor-in-chief of The Intercept. Rick Kwan mixed the show. Our music, as always, was composed by DJ Spooky. I'm Laura Flynn. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.